Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, if you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided there in the seats, you'll find today's text on page 578, 578 of the black Bibles that are provided. We're going to be looking at the book of Acts. We looked at the first 11 verses last week as Pastor Dan brought the word to us, and we're going to be biting off a big chunk this morning because we're going to cover verses 12 all the way through the end of the passage. I would like to read the entirety of our text this morning so that we get a good handle on the context. I know it is lengthy, but if you will bear with me, I think it will serve us well um, to read the entirety of it. So again, page 578, if you're using one of the black Bibles um, that are provided, I would encourage you to um, take that and open it. We're going to be basically marching through this text of Scripture. That's what we do here at North Hills. Um, And then if you don't have a Bible that you can read on your own, please feel free to keep that black Bible uh, as our gift to you. There are a lot of good passages, and we're only going to want to look at one of them this morning. So Acts chapter 5 again, beginning in verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, But the people esteemed them highly, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing uh, by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest arose up, And all those who were with him, uh, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those Uh, with, with him came and called the council together with all the elders and the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter, with the other apostles, answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree, whom God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit 
whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. And then, then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thudius rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they called for the apostles and had beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Lord, help us in these moments that we have together to consider this sheer word. We're thankful for the gospel. We rejoice in it this morning, and we pray that we would be inspired to be faithful as we see here. In Christ's name, amen. You cannot stop the good news of Jesus. You cannot stop the gospel. That's what this passage teaches us this morning. Now, there have been stories all throughout history of those who were, were quote-unquote, freedom fighters, those who were willing to, to lay down their lives for the cause of freedom, right? I mean, here in Texas, everybody remembers the Alamo, right? The, the story that kind of, kind of rings really strong here in central Texas, the, the story of these, these ones who, who stood off against the, the would-be um, conquerors and fought most of them even to the death. That, of course, along, if you know your Texas history, that that, along with the massacre at Goliad, was the battle cry in the Battle of San Jacinto, or mispronounced San Jacinto, right? That's, that's the, that, the cry, right? Remember the Alamo, remember the Goliad, and, and as Santa Anna, was, Santa Anna was defeated, that was the thing that everybody rallied around. Santa Anna thought he was going to squash the rebellion. He thought he was going to... Uh, put an end to this, uh, this cause for freedom, but instead he just fueled it. He made it stronger. Now, we could change all of those names and repeat the story over and over again all throughout history, right? Because there's numerous stories of those who, who were, were freedom fighters. They were inspired and, and they were put down, but really all that did was gave fuel to the fire of the, of the cause of freedom. The story goes back for centuries. It's repeated again and again with, with slightly different circumstances and different names. But if that's true of political freedom, how much more true is it of spiritual freedom in Christ? The gospel can't be stopped. 
The truth of the freedom from sin that is found in Jesus Christ cannot be put down, and all human attempts to put it down have really just charged it that much more, have made it that much stronger. We now here in the book of Acts are at the outset of a story that will begin to be repeated over and over and over again throughout the history of the Christian church. And what we see beginning here is something that has rung true throughout the centuries that you cannot stop the gospel. The gospel is unstoppable. Now, there's a couple reasons in this passage that we see the gospel proving to be unstoppable. Now, there's persecution mounting, right? There are, there are, there's, we've seen this for the last, sep, the last several chapters, that the, the opponents to the message of Jesus are beginning to grow stronger. Persecution is beginning to crescendo. But the persecution does not stop the gospel. And it doesn't stop it, first of all, because of its purifying effect. So in verse 12, we read it together. We see basically three responses to this message of the gospel that is beginning to make its way throughout the city of Jerusalem. So notice with me again, we read it already, but notice again with me the last part of verse 12. And they were all in one accord. So the they there is probably... Luke is probably referring to the church. He's probably referring to the followers of Jesus. They had already been meeting um, in this, this colonnade outside the temple, on the outer part of the temple. Uh, this was called Solomon's Porch. It would have been not only uh, a religious center, but kind of a community gathering place, a, a community center, if you will. And the, and the church had already been meeting there in a large group. The preaching of the gospel had already been taking place. And so they're continuing to meet there in one accord. Again, that's that same unity that we saw just a ch couple chapters ago being fostered amongst the followers of Christ. Verse 13, yet none of the rest, okay, this is the, the unbelieving Jews, this is the, the rest of the Jewish people, dared join them, even though, what, the people, the masses, all, the the, the, the majority of people highly regarded them, right? Verse 13, they esteemed them highly. So there was this great respect, there was this great honor for, for the church, the work of the church, the message of the gospel. But people were afraid to join. People were afraid to get behind this cause of Jesus of Nazareth. It was a dangerous time to be a Christian. And everyone, believers and unbelievers alike, knew that it was dangerous to be a Christian. So, what was the result of, of what we see in verse 13? What was the result of this fear that permeated Jerusalem concerning Jesus? I mean, this really put a damper on evangelistic efforts, right? I mean, it really slowed things down for the church. I mean... No one is getting saved in this kind of hostile environment, right? Not at all. Look at verse 14. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of men and women. What we actually see is this almost counterintuitive reality that as persecution increased, so do conversions. 
as the gospel is attempted to be put down by the authorities, the gospel grows that much stronger. And so, it almost seems that the persecution is helping the cause of the church. Now, this is interesting because this is often what happens in the face of persecution. You've all heard the illustration before of gold that is purified, right? Gold that is heated up it, 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 and the dross rises to the surface and the dross can be pulled off. It is, it is made more pure by the fire, by the heat. And that is seen again and again in the history of the church that as that fire of persecution grows more intense, as the, as the flames grow stronger, the church becomes more pure. Now, make no mistake, persecution is not something we want or seek. Right? We just prayed together from 1 Timothy 2. As we prayed for our leaders in authority, we prayed that we might be able to live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy. We do not want persecution. We do not seek persecution. We're not, we're not sadistic. Right? No one wants that. But the reality is this. Historically, persecution has always been good for the church because it purifies the church. Now, why does that happen? Why is persecution something that God often will use to amplify the gospel? Well, there's one reason is this. It offers credibility to the claims of Christ. I mean, it, it demonstrates the supernatural work of God in the life of someone who is able to withstand hardship, in particular the hardship of persecution, and still remains faithful to Christ. It is a visible, it is a profound demonstration of the reality of the gospel. Adoniram Judson, born in 1778, is a name that you should know. He was one man amongst several who really gave birth to the modern missions movement. He was well known for his work in Burma. But his work in Burma was not easy. He went through tremendous hardship and was willing to face much loss for the cause of Christ. For seven years, he suffered hunger and deprivation. He was thrown in prison where he was kept for 17 months. He eventually would lose his family. Much persecution that Judson went through. When he was released from, when he was released from prison, he stood before the magistrate. The magistrate, seeing that he had been beaten and, and wounded in prison told him that he must, he must stop. But he continued to seek permission that he go to yet another province to preach the gospel. And this godless ruler said no. He, he turned down his request. He denied his request, and he did it with these words. He said this, My people are not fools enough to listen to anything a missionary might say. But I fear they might be impressed by your scars and turn to your religion. 
There's another reason that persecution strengthens the church. Notice with me verse 13. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Persecution strengthens the church because those who come to Christ in that kind of an environment are sincere. I mean, there's, there's little motivation to be a Christian when it means being beaten, having your property taken, or even death. Now, I am thankful, and I hope you are thankful, for the great freedoms that we enjoy in this country. I pray that that continues. But you must also recognize that there is a bit of a downside to that. The fact is that much of American Christianity is one of social convenience. It's an expedited and easy path. It's an acceptable path. It's easily chosen. And so for that reason, many professing Christians are not followers of Jesus at all. They're just simply on the convenient path. Beyond that, many who are truly converted are, are weak and tepid in their faith, which is really another reason that persecution serves a good end in God's economy. It's because it increases the church's boldness because the church must then rely on God yet the more. And that's exactly what we see in verses 17 and following, that persecution does not stop the gospel because of the power of God. So here's this next wave of persecution, verse 17. Notice it with me. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. Now, you remember I explained this um, some weeks ago, that the Sanhedrin was the ruling body of the temple, okay? So they, they by default had the influence, they had the rule amongst the Jews. Now, they were under Roman rule, but the Sanhedrin was the ruling body that, that practically ruled in day-to-day -day matters amongst the Jews. As long as they maintained peace with Rome, as long as they kept Rome happy, and, and, and off their back, the Sanhedrin had pretty free reign to rule even though it was under the umbrella of Roman rule. Now, within the Sanhedrin, within the rulership of the Jewish people, there were these two kind of political parties, you might say. You had the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the Republicans and the Sadducees were the Democrats. Right? It's, okay, that's a bit of an oversimplification, but it's not far off, right? I mean, one was the hypocritical religious right who leveraged God's laws to their own political ends. The other party, the secularist who scoffed at the supernatural and had no qualms about spurning truth as long as they stayed in power. And now you're all wondering if I'm talking about modern America or ancient Israel. And you see the similarities, right? So, so you have these two warring parties, right, that, that are vying for power. But when it comes to opposing Jesus, they're on the same page because that is a threat to their power. That there are these, these uneducated, Galilean, redneck preachers 
who are, who are gathering and following after themselves about this one called Jesus, and they're accusing us of being responsible for killing him, which they were. So this jealousy wells up. We've already seen one wave of persecution. We're now seeing the second wave from this ruling body. So here's where we, that's the context, verse 18. They laid their hands on the apostle, apostles and put them in the common prison. But what does God do? Verse 19. At night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now, notice, please, verse 19, that they weren't merely delivered so they could just, you know, go enjoy life. You know, time to go take a cruise now. No, no, they were delivered and then they were commissioned again. What does verse 19, or verse 20 rather, say? Go, stand in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, if you're using um, one particular translation, we're using the NAS, if any of you have that in front of you, you'll notice that they capitalize life as a reference to Jesus. And that's perfectly legitimate, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? So, verse 20, they say, go preach Jesus. Go preach, go preach about new life. Go back to the temple where you got arrested and preach. This is the reason they were, they were set free by the angel. I wonder if you and I tend to ask for deliverance do we do so if we were to ask for deliverance would it be would it be for our own comfort or would it be for our ability to spread the gospel would we say yay i'm out of prison i can go sleep in my own bed or would we say yay i'm out of prison i get to go back and preach where i got arrested <coughs> many of you know the name john bunyan the great preacher was arrested for preaching on the streets of London. He was sentenced to Bedford Prison. After three months, they called him before the authorities and they said, you may be released if you promise not to preach again. Many times in the coming months, he would be called again and again before the magistrate and asked to promise not to preach. And his answer was, if I'm set free from prison today, I will preach again tomorrow on the streets of London. And all in all, he would spend 12 years in prison for the preaching of the gospel. While he was imprisoned, of course, you know that he wrote many of his 60 books, the best known of them, Grace abounding to the chief of sinners and Pilgrim's Progress. Right? So, for these apostles, they're, they're set free. They're set free with a commission. Go back to the temple. Go preach the gospel. Go preach the good news. Go preach uh, the one who gives life. And I would, I would say probably on the one hand, it seems intimidating, right? Go back and preach openly at the temple. But on the other hand, I mean, this is pretty encouraging when an angel lets you out of prison and says, go back and preach. I mean, they were probably feeling pretty confident at this point. You see, they've just seen illustrated the truth that God rules and God can preserve them as he sees fit. 
God was teaching them, and, and, and He's teaching us, that He can deliver His servants from oppression whenever it accomplishes His end. So this angel was sent not merely to deliver them, but to encourage them. And that's exactly what they do. They go back and they preach in verse 21 and following. So God is here showing His power. He is strengthening His servants for the continued preaching of the gospel. There's one, one final reason I see in this text that the gospel can't be stopped, and that is this. Persecution doesn't stop the gospel because of the persistence of truth. Did you pay close attention to this dialogue that takes place following verse 22? So in verse 25, they say, hey, these, these guys that you put in prison, I think they're in the court of the temple preaching. Like, how did that happen? So they send people to find out. They say, go to the prison and bring these guys. And verse 27, they bring them, uh, they set them before the council. This is that Sanhedrin that we've referred to several times. And the high priest, who's kind of the, the chairman of the board here, the high priest asked them, he asked them, how did you get out of prison? Nope, actually, he didn't ask that. <laughs> I don't think they wanted to know the answer. All right, verse 28. Like, didn't we strictly command you not to teach in this name? You'll notice that they are unwilling to even say the name. And by the way, this continued for Jewish history uh, for centuries, that they would not even speak the name of Jesus. They would refer to him in derogatory terms, uh, kind of a, by the way, this name, you preach in this name, but they don't want to actually name Jesus. Rest of verse 8, and look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Now, isn't that interesting? A city of thousands of people, and just a few months after Jesus' resurrection, and their enemies are admitting that the whole city is abuzz with the message of Jesus. They're they filling the city with their teaching. And then notice what they say in the rest of verse 28. And intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now these are the same Jews that had cried out for Jesus' death. And had said, what? Let his blood be on us and upon our children, right? So it really wasn't the apostles that were doing that. They've done that to themselves. But it is true that Peter does not hold back in prosecuting his case. Right? Verse 30, he says, You killed him with your own hands, literally. Right? Now, they didn't, weren't the ones that actually drove the spikes, but they might as well have. This was the group that was responsible for fomenting all of the circumstances surrounding Jesus' death. They were responsible, and they had cried out, let his blood be on us and upon our children. Now, back up to verse 29. Peter and the apostles answered, and they said, we ought to obey God rather than man. Now, we know scripturally that we are obligated to obey human government. We see a principle here that was alluded to the last time they stood before the Sanhedrin. That is that we are, we're obligated to obey human government, but when government commands us the opposite of what God commands us, we obey the higher authority, God. And then in verses 30 through 32, he preaches the gospel again. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. 
Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. So he goes through this, this work of Jesus. Jesus died on a cross. He was killed. He was crucified. You did it, he says to the Sanhedrin. But it was to accomplish God's good purposes. And the good purpose that Jesus accomplished in dying on that cross was what in this text? To provide forgiveness of sin. Now that's important because that is the heart of the gospel. You and I are born sinners. We are guilty of doing that which violates the law of God. Every one of us are sinners. We do the very things that we ought not do, and we fail to do the things that we ought. The Bible calls that sin. Because of our sin, the Bible is crystal clear that we are separated from God. All have sinned, Romans 3 tells us, and fall short of the glory of God. None of us meet God's righteous standard of perfection. And the wages of sin, we're told in Romans 6.23, the consequence for our sin is death, eternal death in a terrible place called hell, we're shown in Revelation 21. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve because you and I are sinners. We are due to be separated from God, not just in this life, but in the life to come for all eternity. You say, well, that doesn't sound like good news. Here's the good news. Jesus took upon himself the penalty that we owe and as Peter alludes to in these verses, he did so that we might have forgiveness of sin. You see, we sang in our Psalm of the Month, God can be just. God will not deny his justice. Justice must be served. But God can be just and what? Sinners justified. Because Jesus took the penalty that we deserve. He died on a cross, he was buried, and he rose again the third day. And when he rose again the third day, he signified the fact that he now has the authority to offer forgiveness of sin to all who will come to him in faith and repentance. And that, my friends, is how we access that forgiveness, through faith repentance. From turning from our way, that's repentance, my way is wrong, I am a sinner, I am deserving of these consequences that God says I'm deserving of, and faith, trust, dependence on Him alone to save us. We can't do that on our own. We can't do that through our works. In fact, the Bible's already made it clear that, that if it's up to us, if it's resting on our works, that we are eternally separated from Him. Not by works of righteousness, the scripture says, that we, we have done. But according to his mercy, he saves us. So the question is, have you ever abandoned your way? Have you ever abandoned your religion, your goodness, your works, your sin, your self-confidence? Have you ever repented, turned from your way, and depended completely on Jesus Christ for salvation, for forgiveness of sin? If you've never done that, my friend, today can be the day. Anyone who is here who's a member of North Hills would be thrilled to sit down with you and talk through this to show you in the Bible what God has said about how we can have forgiveness and eternal life. This is the message that Peter is preaching. 
And there are many, we see in the passage, who are believing this message. They're embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, but not everyone is, right? Verses 30 through 32, look at verse 33 in particular. When they heard this, they were furious. They were furious, that literally they were sawn through, is what the Greek says. And that is one response to the gospel, anger. Because the gospel goes at the very heart of our pride. This notion that, that we can do it, we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we can save ourselves, I'll do better, is, is rooted in our pride. And the gospel threatens because it calls on us to abandon our way and to depend on Jesus Christ, who's the only one who can save, as we referred to a moment ago, who says he is the way, the truth, the life. And so these men, in rejecting the gospel, become very angry. And so this is when Gamaliel rises. Notice with me verse 34, Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, honored, a teacher of the law, honored by the people. Now, I will have to tell you that Luke makes a bit of an understatement here about Gamaliel. Gamaliel was very highly regarded. This is, this is Gamaliel I. He's a Pharisee. He was very well known for his piety. In fact, he was one of only seven men in Jewish history to be called Rabban, our master. The Mishnah, which is the, the Jewish oral tradition, says of him, when Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. He was venerated. He was highly respected. And so his advice, starting in verse 33, is very interesting, and, and it is heeded by those who are within his hearing. So in starting in verse 33, he does what? He chronicles two recent incidents of men who had risen up with kind of a religious insurrection. These were teachers who had drawn a significant following. And the fact is we don't really know a lot of detail about these incidents, but that is in part Gamaliel's point, right? I mean, their movements fizzled out. Notice the end of verse 36, it, it came to nothing. End of verse 37, all who obeyed him were dispersed. And so then his, this is his conclusion in verse 38. Now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But, he says, verse 39, if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to fight against God. Now, Gamaliel makes this rather compelling case to leave them alone, because this sect of those who follow Jesus will also die out if it's not of God. But what he does is really interesting here, right? I mean, he is making 
making an argument, he's inadvertently making a tremendous point, a tremendous argument for the truth of Christ, right? Verse 39, but if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it. And we would all say, amen. <laughs> you are exactly right. Two millennia later, we look at those words from Gamaliel and say, yeah, you're right. If it's of God, you can't overthrow it. In fact, powerful people have been trying to stamp out Christianity for centuries, and it can't be done because it's not the work of men. It is the work of God. The resilience of the Christian faith is one. Now, it is certainly not the only one, but it is one piece of evidence as to the authenticity of Christ's claims. Certainly, there are errors that persist, right? Don't, don't make a logical fallacy mistake here. The continuance of something does not prove it true, but if something is true, it will certainly persist. You cannot keep the truth down. And this is the truth of the gospel, that Jesus died, he rose again, and he offers forgiveness to all who will come to him in faith and repentance. And what a wonderful message it has been and continues to be even to this day. So verse 40, they agree with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, okay, it would have been the custom of that day for them to be lashed with a whip 39 times. So they get off relatively easy. Right? How, many, how many of us would go our way rejoicing because we only got 39 lashes? Right. They were commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. All right, we're going to tell you guys this again. We've told you this a couple times already. We're going to tell you again, this time with a, with a beating, with a lashing. Don't preach Jesus. But verse 41, notice this. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Right? This is Matthew, Matthew 5, Jesus' words. Blessed are you when men revile and persecute you. And they said, guys, we got the privilege of suffering for Jesus. How, how wonderful is that? They go their way rejoicing because they got to suffer for the sake of his name. And then verse 42, the message continues. It doesn't die out. And we're going to continue to see throughout the book of Acts, it just grows stronger. They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You cannot stop the gospel. Now, I wonder how that applies to you this morning. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never obeyed the gospel. That is to say, you've never repented and believed. Because the gospel is true, and because the Holy Spirit takes that gospel and applies it to us, you cannot stop the gospel. You can resist it, you can fight against it. You can say no to the Holy Spirit that is doing a work in your heart, perhaps even this morning, but you cannot stop the gospel. So the question is this morning, how will you respond if you've not yet believed? Will you respond as these, these religious leaders and grow angry 
and resist the gospel? Or will you respond as the, multi- the many that we see in this passage who are, who are willing even to sign up for suffering because this is true? This forgiveness of sin that is found in Jesus Christ is, is worth living for. And I guess that would be another application for us this morning. Have you found something worth living for and even worth dying for? Or do you live for things that will, will fade away? For wealth, for fame, for, for career advancement? For things around you? Is that what you're living for? Or are you living for something that is eternal, that can never die out? The truth of who Jesus Christ is. Beyond that, as we apply this to our own hearts, how do you and I think about the important task of giving the gospel? The early church wasn't dissuaded, even by beatings or even the threat of death. Are we dissuaded by just mere fear of rejection? As being thought of as unsophisticated? Or are we even more easily dissuaded just just by the simple fact of inconvenience? It's, It's not convenient to give the gospel. And then and then as we apply this passage, how do we think about our hardship? Persecution or, or even just day-to-day hardship, the difficulties that we go through in life. Do we think about it as these men did, as a cause for rejoicing? As an opportunity to, to live the gospel out, to demonstrate Jesus Christ's supernatural work in our lives? Do we think about opposition as an opportunity for God's power to be seen and the gospel to be amplified. You cannot stop the gospel. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are thankful for your work. We are thankful for these by whom we can be inspired and encouraged and told of the early days of the message of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we live in the reality of the gospel each day. I pray, Lord, for any here who do not know the transforming work of the gospel. May they seek someone out. May they seek uh, your forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. And for those of us, Lord, that have come to Christ in faith and repentance, may we live each day with the reality that seems to to grip these early Christians, the wonderful news of the the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, the reality of forgiveness of sin. I'm going to allow you just a moment to remain bowed before the Lord and to Seek his face to seal whatever decision he has laid upon your heart even this morning. We thank you, Lord, for Christ for the message of Christ that is worthy of telling all men. Drive it deep within our hearts that we may continue to be faithful to it and present it to others. We pray these things in Christ's wonderful name.
Right, our men are coming to wait on us for this morning's tithes and offerings. If you are a guest with us, we want to let you know that this offering is not intended for you. Certainly, if you choose to participate, you're welcome to do that, but we uh, give this offering as an opportunity for those of us that are part of North Hills um, to support the ministry that God is doing here. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for our time in your word, for the encouragement of one another, the encouragement of the message of Christ. Now, Lord, as we give to you, may it be an act of worship that comes from our hearts. In Christ's precious name, amen. John, John, we're going to move right into the um, business meeting, and my fear is that our guests are going to object when we do that. So if you can be out here in the lobby and just make sure everybody gets a good, warm, you know, thank you for coming. Did we get your information? Um, even give my business card if you want. And uh, I just don't want them to get out without. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. He needed to come in probably for the business meeting. All right, a couple of announcements, and then um, we will have a family meeting. Um, so let me kind of tell you a little bit about that. Um, our family meetings are open, so if you are not...